What's up, everybody? Hope your Christmas was merry and you're going into the New Year's with some excitement. I'm super stoked to just be able to spend time with my family, eat good food, hang out with friends, and bring in the New Year. Speaking about the New Year, as we keep our eye on it and 2021 comes our way, I think people are mixed emotions, excited, maybe not so excited because of the different things that have gone on in 2020. But I want to let you know that God is a God of hope. And he hopes, he gives us the hope of heaven and we can look forward to that. And it's going to be a good year because we have a good God. He's going to pull through for us. But I want to take you into the, the throne room of God this morning in Revelation 4. I want to take you into the throne room. I think there's no better place to start the new year than in the presence of God. In Revelation 4, starting in verse 1, it says, After this, I looked. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. And a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And in the front of the throne were seven lamps blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as a crystal. And in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in the front and in the back. And the first living creature was like a lion. And the second was like an ox. And the third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures who had six wings was covered with eyes all around and even under its wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the, then the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This morning I want to be able to preach, teach, and talk story about the throne room of God. Have you ever seen a throne room? Have you ever been to a place where a king once resided, or maybe is currently residing. You probably have. I've been to Iolani Palace to see the beauty of that upper throne room right there in the corner, to see all the red and uh, the furniture and things like that. It was a pretty cool sight, but I could only imagine what John was experiencing when he was describing the throne room of God as the throne itself was the central figure that he's describing here in this passion, this passage, and how the throne is mentioned more than four or five times. 
Could you imagine the rush of feelings that was coming his way as his eyes locked on to the appearance of God? And how he said his appearance was shining like jasper and ruby and how there's an emerald of rainbow surrounding and circling the throne and how actually he got to see what the Bible calls the ancient of days, the sovereign one in all his glory and splendor. Could you imagine? It's hard to, it's hard to imagine. As we live here on earth with our feet so fixed on the here and now, it's hard to imagine what John must have been feeling, especially since it doesn't really say. You know, in simple terms, the word heaven is is a reality that just expresses, not just expresses, it amazingly expresses the richness of God's presence. And here, John records nothing but God's presence and its effect it's having on anything else right here in Revelation 4. Everything John describes in this passage is revolved around the the description of what the throne and what the one who sits on the throne looks like. And from our text, it's clear to see that the one who sits on the throne is worthy of worship. And it leaves us feeling vulnerable. It leaves me feeling vulnerable, needless to say. It leaves me feeling vulnerable with the influx of feelings that I might have had being there in the throne room. Rightfully so. Rightfully so, because when we think about this reality, which is not yet fully here, what bridges the gap for us is a correct understanding of heaven and earth's relationship together. And how God, in his preferred future, wants heaven and earth to somehow bridge the gap. And the Bible calls it a new creation where God is going to make his dwelling among this new created place. In fact, this whole series is based on the verse in Matthew 6 where Jesus says in verse 10, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Helping us to see, helping us to understand that God is interested in heaven. And he doesn't, God doesn't just live in this, in this celestial place where he has little to no desire to have interaction with his creation. No, God is passionately and actively moving and weaving himself in the here and now on earth, even though he is residing on heaven. He didn't just create the earth and go hands off and just leave us to our own devices. No, he is passionately active with us today. The Bible shows us that one day it's going to be made new together. Therefore, God has to be active. And it all comes to the culmination of Jesus's life. That is the greatest sign that God is active here. That when Jesus was here on the earth, he moved and lived and had his being among us. He loved, he gave, he spoke truth, he died and it was resurrected. And how this is even more of a reality today that the spirit he gives us at salvation confirms that we 
are not left alone to our own devices here on this earth. But there's a God in heaven who's put a spirit in us by way of his son's death to let us know that he's interested. He's interested in this earth, wanting to bring it into a new creation. It helps us to see that what we do here matters. That earthly matters actually do matter. And heaven is not just a reality that has little to do with us. It's not just a place we die and go to one day. So in terms of Revelation 4, I think there's a lot to learn from it. Plenty, plenty to learn from this passage. But specifically, I want to draw your attention to worship this morning. But not just worship. Specifically, God-centered, God-focused worship. What do I mean by this? I'm putting it in another way, putting another spin on it. God being at the heart of our worship and praise. That doesn't need to just happen in heaven. That can happen right now. To put it another way, God being the focal point of why we even worship. That among the beautiful nuances we paint in our worship towards God, what, what comes to the surface the most is Him. Is His glory and His honor and His might and His power and His love and His worthiness to receive our praise. And we gotta get, we, I think we gotta get this, we gotta get this on straight, yeah? Church, like, that worship needs to be all about God. It needs to be centered on Him. You know, if we lose our God-centered worship, ultimately we lose our identity in Christ. And I know for me, worship has been crucial in year 2020 as I've been battling with some feelings of isolation and depression. It's, it's really attacked my God-centered identity. But through times with different brothers, times with the campus ministry, random acts of encouragement from my brothers and sisters, it's really strengthened and enforced my God-centered identity. And brothers and sisters, we, we can't lose our identity in the church being fixed on Christ. In the process of trying to realign myself in 2020, it's been messy, but thanks be to God for his faithfulness and strength that he was able to help me. And I even know stepping outside of myself and imagining and understanding that there's probably been some real challenging and threatening times to your God-centeredness. Some of you might be watching right now and you've been struggling with sexual sin, pornography, depression, laziness, marital issues, you name it. And my appeal to you this morning is to show you in Revelation 4 that it teaches us some things. It teaches us some things to help us be God-centered in our worship here on earth right now as it is in heaven. John sees an open door. I want to start with that. He sees an open door. Something very symbolic for communion and desiring conversation with someone. And if it wasn't clear enough for John, 
out came a voice like a trumpet, calling him up to heaven through those doors. Come, John. Come up here. I want to show you some things that needs to take place. And the first thing John sees is the throne centered in heaven and the one who sits on the throne. And how God, in many ways, was being hospitable towards John. And how God gives before we give. You know, that's kind of the point I want to be able to highlight first, that God-centered worship starts with God giving to us before we even give to Him, inviting us in, drawing us in. It makes me think about a Hawaiian language class I used to take in high school, that I did take in high school, where our kumu would make us stand outside the open doors of class, and she would greet all of us with uh, aloha and helemai, come inside. And we were met with gestures of warmth and kindness. And it really shaped the culture of that classroom. And retrospect, what it taught me is that learning began with aloha in that classroom. And here John receives an even more significant call into heaven. And how there's depth of meaning in just this first couple of verses. That the open door was inviting him. And the call was calling him to walk through those doors. So that he could experience a worship that he's never experienced before. And even more so, there's depth in understanding that God was letting an actual human into heaven, highlighting and showing the mercies and the grace that God was extending, not just to John, but to us who read, that in a way, I'm going to get to it, we too can approach this throne. You know, God inviting John in to show him some amazing things reminds me of a time where I was growing up and a, a family member, you know, he had a lot of he had a hard time. I mean, he went through a lot of abuse and whatnot, and he'd run away from home. And one night, he was waiting in my family's yard. And if it wasn't for my family, my mom and my dad probably wouldn't have seen him. And maybe he would have stayed in the cold all night. I'm not sure. But even though we were close, and he knew that the door was open for him, what he needed was a cue. He needed a cue of grace, hospitality from my parents to let him know that it was okay for him to come in and stay the night. And we were glad for him to find peace, at least for a night, in our home. And I could imagine, like I was saying earlier, the feelings of unworthiness that John might have had to step in to the presence of God where the ancient one was there. But the call and the invitation and the hospitality of God to say to John, come up here. I want to show you not only resonates for him, but it trickles down to us. It gave him the confidence to step in through those doors, that invitation. It gave him reassurance that, man, I got the call from God. I'm going to be in this realm right now. And it's recorded beautifully for us 
this throne, this throne room to help us see that at the, at the heart of God-centered worship, worship is initiated by God. It's an invitation of God. To help make sense of this even a little bit more, here's a scripture in Hebrews 4, verse 14. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne with grace, of grace with confidence, so he may receive mercy in our time of need. As you can see here, Jesus is referenced as a great high priest. In Israel, the high priest almost functioned as a bridge between God and people. And in a way, it was a place where heaven and earth were meeting so that the people of God could be reassured that God was among them, that God was dwelling with them, and that there was access to God. And here, we see that Jesus is our high priest. He's our confidence. He's our reassurance. That we're able to approach the throne of God with confidence because of grace and because of mercy. And what I really think the writer is getting at here in Hebrews with the idea of confidence is that because of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, we can now experience fellowship with God that removes the layers of institution where institution only selects a couple people that can connect with God in this close and intimate manner. But in fact, now through Jesus, it is if, we're, it is if God is treating us as his honored guest, calling us with an open invitation to the throne so we can receive from him mercy in times of need. You know, I believe this is something that John needed, talking about mercy. Early Christian writers tell us that John was on the island of Patmos because he was sent there after people threw him into a boiling pot in oil intended to kill him, but he miraculously survived. Now there's some controversy of whether he had pain. Some people say that he never have no scars like that, but you know, it, it's up for talk, but needless to say, like, can you imagine the pain of isolation being on this island? The fears associated with, man, someone just tried to kill me. And maybe he did have some bodily injury too. I don't know. But I do know, and my guess is that it created a lot of room for, he, for him to have needs. And the throne was, in my mind, fit for him to receive comforts of mercy from God. What I think we can learn from this is that sometimes God, in his attempts to be hospitable in our lives, makes room for that by way of trial and hardship. Hard times. I think God uses that 
to make room and help us to see that he wants us to draw nearer and closer. I think that's, I think that's why the writers in the New Testament has this topsy-turvy kind view on suffering. James, hey, if you go through hardship, rejoice. When you face trials of many kinds, praise God, rejoice. Because we know that God works in the tapestry of pain and suffering and discomfort. I think this is applicable in so many levels to all of us as we all live through pain. And no one can really emphasize through our pain. Can I get an amen? No one's gone through what I've gone through. No one's gone through what you've gone through. But God knows. God sees. God's there. I think for us, it's a matter of maintaining a faithful mindset in those moments of discomfort. To pause. To think. To pray about what God is trying to show us in those moments of discomfort. To make room in the midst of your pain for God. Maybe asking yourself questions like, God, what are you showing me? God, what are you trying to teach me? God, what do you want me to do? Brothers and sisters, don't waste your pain. Don't let your pain go to the wayside and try to just get through it on your own strength. Put your head down and try to bust through that wall on your own strength. No, stop. And let God lead you towards a centered relationship on him, a centered worship on him. God revealed to John something of great value in his mix of trials and hardship. And in the grand scheme of things, going back to my point, I think on the basis of God's initiation, his engagement with us, him desiring to be hospitable in our lives, it is that that actually establishes terms where we can have a God-centered worship that revolves around Him. You know, winding down here, I wanted to just look at a couple of these characters in Revelation 4. I think it could teach us more about a God-focused worship to have in the here and now on this earth. We don't have to wait to heaven. You know, these four creatures that it talks about is absolutely fascinating. And I have no idea what it symbolizes or represents. I don't even know if it's literal or figurative. Uh, along with these 24 elders dressed in white robes and crowns on their head. I have no idea what that represents. But what caught my attention was the way in which they function with one another. The way in which their worship was working in, in, in conjunction with each other. And how when the, the creatures in unison would say, in unison would say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It would almost read, it reads that it almost calls like a chain, a chain effect of events to where the beast would give glory and then the elders would fall down on their knees before the throne and place their crowns before the feet of him who looked like jasper and ruby so as to give him more and more praise. And the point, I think the point that I'm trying to deliver here is that through community, through community, 
God-centered worship is expressed even greater. And I believe this is God's preferred future. This is God's preferred future, that our worship to God would be centered on God together, not simply as individuals. Though I do believe God looks and honors the individual, here's what I'm saying. There's beauty behind a community. There's a bonding agent within tying individuals to community to worship the one true God in heaven. And it's the, the agent is the decision to love one another, the decision to engage with one another. It's super hard to worship God, personally speaking. It's super hard to worship God when there's an atmosphere of hostility with one another instead of love. Not that that can't be worked through, but when I'm talking about when things aren't addressed or worked through and we're not engaging in deciding to love one another, that's simply what I'm saying. It can be hard to get our minds on God, to have our hearts in the right place, worshiping Him, focusing on, on Him, centering ourselves on Him. If we're not choosing to live this life with love, I think that's why Paul puts so much emphasis on love in 1 Corinthians 13, where the current church was experiencing all kinds of stuff. I mean, specifically, there is experiencing disruption within the church, especially in their worship services, because they had put so much emphasis on leaders and they put so much emphasis on how well knowledge could be expressed based on the law that it resulted in making people proud. They made a proud congregation. So much so that they couldn't see the importance of love being that agent that binds together differences, that binds together individuals into a community that can have a focus that is on God. Specifically in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul uses a poem to express the importance of his love on both sides of eternity, the heaven and the earth. And it goes like this. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in the mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul references a child in terms of knowledge to really bring out this idea that as long as we're living on this side of eternity, we don't really know fully the glories and the realities of this new creation that God is going to establish. We don't know it for all the fields and the experiences that that comes with. But, but we gotta hang on to the eternal virtue of love. That even though we don't know what the new creation is gonna be like, we can still express the virtue of love that will be expressed throughout all time. 
You see, because when we get to heaven, faith will not be expressed because we'll see God face to face. When we get to heaven, we won't need hope because every tear, every grief and sorrow will be wiped away and only love will be fully realized. Being able to love each other creates space for us. For what? To have a God-centered worship. Love creates that space for God. I think uh, a pretty popular theologian today, N.T. Wright, puts it perfectly in a quote where he says, Love is not our duty, but our destiny. A uh, local version of how I interpret that is, you know, if, if we're going to this place where love is happening all the time, uh, we, we better live like it, huh? <laughs> we better pack our bags with love, put on clothes of love, brush our teeth with toothpaste love. You know what I mean? Like everything we do has to be based off of love because that's our destiny. It's not our duty. It's not something we just do out of obligation. Or because God is hanging over our head? No, it's because we realize the impact of which he's had on us first and that it's going to be expressed for all time. So we should be doing that now. I think the call for us is clear as a church. I really don't think I need to express it. But the call in this God-centered worship is to continue loving one another in this life, the way God has intended it to be in eternity. As God is hospitable with us, we should be hospitable with one another. And we should be engaging with one another. We should be getting in that mess. It is messy to love people. I am not the best, but you know what? We're called to do it and it's our destiny. And it makes us be different in this lifetime. Let's get in there. Let's love one another. 2021 is a year where it's going to be centered on God as we worship him. Understanding that we worship him because he's initiated with us through the blood of Jesus. He's given us access, an open door, a calling from heaven to come and participate in his worship. But not by yourself. Not by yourself. In community where love is fully expressed and fully accentuated. I want to close with this one last thought of practicality as we wind down here. You know, one thing that I see with these creatures is that they never stop worshiping. They worship day and night. And how it really shows me that in terms of my devotion and my love, my love for one another. There is no timetable on that. There's no time lapse. Let's not get stuck in thinking that our worship belongs only to a Sunday or to a Wednesday or to a nice little D group at a Starbucks at some odd day. I'm kind of jokingly saying that. I'm sure that's an awesome time. But you get my point. Let's not hang on the crutch of thinking it's one, two, three times a week. It's every day. 
It's with one another and it's for God's glory. 2021, God-centered worship, giving our hearts to one another as we give our hearts to God. To God be the glory.